0: I just knew deep in my heart that if nobody else was going to run against him, we could not have four more years of this because I would see going into every courtroom, whether it was as a defense attorney or as a director of ROCA, a massive amount of unnecessary human suffering on behalf of victims, defendants, and witnesses every single day. And I thought this simply can't happen. And if no one else is going to run against him, then I'm going to run against him.
1: Welcome back to Vardier conversations from the criminal justice policy program at Harvard Law School. We're so excited to have you back for the fall season. We've got a great lineup. Kicking it off this week with a conversation with Shannon McAuliffe, who is a candidate for district attorney here in Suffolk County in Boston. The primaries are on Tuesday, September fourth, So she is in the thick of it. Uh, the primaries basically decide the election here in Massachusetts because pretty much everyone is a Democrat. Shannon was a public defender before going to work for an organization called ROCA, which works with people at really high risk of committing crime. And we're going to talk about her ideas of what a progressive candidate are, what a progressive district attorney looks like, and what her vision for change is. So here's our conversation. OK, Shannon, thank you so much for having me. It's nice to be in your home overlooking the Mokely Courthouse. So it's just like justice on the mind. Um, let's just start with a, with a sort of broad question around what you think it means to be a progressive district attorney.
0: So we've heard a lot about being progressive in this race from a lot of different candidates. And I think it's really easy to show up when there's an open seat and say, all of a sudden, I'm progressive. But I really think being a progressive candidate is more than just talk. It's really something that's blended into every decision you've made, all the jobs you've had, and really the choices you've made as a lawyer and what to do with your law degree. So I feel really proud that I can say that I really believe I am truly the progressive candidate because I have been fighting the fight. I've been working for the change I want to see in the system literally since I went to law school in 1993. Um, and being a public defender, and then being a director at ROCA. You know, I've always really believed that we have to be the change we want to see in the world and the system, and that's what I've done. And I think that's what being progressive is. It's doing the hard thing um, when it's, you know, unpopular. It's being in the fight because it's the right fight, um, not because it's the convenient fight. Can you talk a
1: little bit about the, you mentioned there's sort of a crowded field of quote-unquote progressive candidates. Can you just give us a quick characterization
0: of what the field looks like? Sure, so I have four opponents right now running. All four have been prosecutors. Um, All four have been part of this status quo system, part of a scorecard mentality none have done anything in their past prosecuting to realize the values they now espouse. So I think, while well, I'm, well, I'm really happy to have sort of like new friends and, friends and allies in this fight, it's important to realize that if you've prosecuted one way and now say you wanna do something wholly different, sort of like, oops, I'm sorry, I, you know, I did the wrong thing then and now I wanna change things, I mean, that's great. But I don't think that we have a lot of evidence that they will have what it takes to actually push change, have what it takes to actually stand up against the status quo. If you've never done that, it's really difficult. But as a defense attorney, we do that every single day. As a director of a nonprofit that's the most, you know, one of the most innovative organizations saying we simply can do different with really high-risk offenders. I mean, that's the kind of person I think who, if what we want in our next DA is somebody to stand up against the status quo, it has to be somebody who's done it before. And none of the other candidates, frankly, have.
1: Um, So it sounds like progressive means both a sort of uh, a mindset and a a framework and a background, but also there has to sort of be a platform to stand on. Can you just walk me through, you know, some of the main
0: tenets of your platform? Sure. The overarching goal here is to really address and correct the discrimination that we have in our courtrooms. So we have a DA, we had a DA for 16 years, who sort of prosecuted who was in front of him, who said, you know, I can't do anything about uh, racism, I can't do anything about classism, I have to prosecute who's in front of me. And I think that, you know, I want to be the DA who says, I don't just prosecute who's in front of me, I actually recognize the discrimination and the inequities that exist in the world, and I'm going to prosecute with that in mind to ensure that those inequities aren't exacerbated and play out you know, more detrimentally in my courtrooms. So if we're talking about discrimination in our courtrooms where people get a different result based on skin color, income, and zip code, then it's really about how do we reform every single pressure point to ensure that we are really eliminating the discrimination that we've seen happen you know, day in and day out for decades and decades, which is why we're in the place that we're in with deep racial disparities. So if it's from you know, not accepting charges that look like they are racially based, um, not accepting charges that wouldn't happen if somebody had money as opposed to um, being poor, not asking for high bails for people who are poor, um, offering diversion to everyone, ensuring that we're not overcharging, because the people who are overcharged are usually black, brown, and poor, and or poor. Um, And so it's really about a mindset of looking at prosecuting in a way that we are very aware that we want to ensure that wealth and color doesn't get people a different result. So... That seems
1: to require a great deal of cultural change. If you're if if you're talking about mindset and, and using the discretion in the DA's office in a different way, can you talk a little bit about like how you envision going about
0: changing the culture of the DA's office? Sure. So I've done I did this at Roca. Uh, Roca is a nonprofit that helps really high risk young men and young moms get to the things that will help them turn away from crime. So when I started in Roca, Chelsea, my job was to turn around a really young, sort of underperforming team into a higher performing team, which I did. And then when I went to Roca, Boston, my job was to really reinvigorate a site that had a tragic murder on it. Um, And really all work had virtually stopped. And I had to determine how I was going to go in and actually say, listen, we're going to keep doing this work. And I did it with great success. So I think it's important to realize that sort of my brand right now is going in and changing culture. And if we can at ROCA and my job there really help the highest risk young men who've never even considered change, change, I think I have the best chance of helping prosecutors actually change their mindset. Right now, the values that have been laid down for prosecutors are, you know, win at all costs, it's really a scorecard mentality. Even though they don't want to think that it is, it, it just is um, in every single courtroom in Suffolk County every single day. So it's really about how do we set different values. And so instead of the value of winning or convicting, if the value is safety at all points, then a DA is going to have to actually think about how they prosecute to ensure that this person in front of them whom they're prosecuting is, will be less likely and not more likely to commit crime in year, year one, year two, and year three. And so that's going to require DAs to really think outside the box. We all know that if somebody is jailed, it's more likely that they're going to commit crime. And so there's sort of these two routes. If we're talking about safety, if the only way we can assure some we can assure the community's safety is by locking somebody away for a really long time, well then that would be what the DA would have to do. But if it's one of these other moments, and again, 95% of cases are in district court, which means 95% of cases, we can simply do something different. Um, to say, all right, we have somebody in front of us who keeps breaking into people's cars. How do I ensure that this person is less likely to break into somebody's car when we are when they're exiting? The system in the courtroom, as opposed to more. And if a DA can convince my, me, or him or herself that that's jail, well, then great. But all the evidence shows that jail is going to make it more likely um, that he's going to be he or she's going to be more vulnerable or more desperate, um, and you know to actually commit that next crime. So I think it's really about having a guiding principle. And if the guiding principle is safety, and we always go back to that, how do we ensure this person's less likely to commit crime? then they're going to have to simply prosecute in a different way. And I'm not saying that it's going to happen overnight, but listen, being a prosecutor is tough. You have to deal with tragedies that happen all the time. You have to deal with people who are incredibly hurt and victims and families um, who are, and lots of families who are often victims and then can become defendants and then become witnesses. I mean, so many people are just entrenched in this system where there's tragedy everywhere. And certainly we need to prosecute to ensure that victims get justice. But when there are all of these other moments in the system where we could actually use the prosecutorial power to build people in communities and not just punish, I believe that DAs will start to flourish. I believe that DAs will like that part of their job and say, listen, I have to to ensure that somebody's off the street at times. But if I could, in my other parts of my job, actually get people to the things that make them strong and see people being built, uh, I think that they will actually enjoy their job more, dig in more, and will see a culture where not only communities and victims and defendants can get to the things that make them strong, but that prosecutors themselves can be stronger because they can be part of... um, really a movement where we say we can simply do different to get a different result.
1: That's interesting. I would never really thought about, most of the time when people talk about reforming prosecutor's offices, they talk about all the things they should stop doing, and I've never really heard someone articulate a vision for, like, how are you going to motivate people to do this job differently other than fire the old people, which seems to be sort of what I have heard. So it's interesting to articulate a vision of what would a prosecutor's office look like that didn't work like this?
0: Well, right, and I think we're all so used to the status quo, and prosecutors are so used to the status quo. And when listening to other candidates speak, a lot of it is about, you know, cleaning house. And listen, I think truly campaigns don't change you, but they reveal who you are. I don't believe that the status quo in our criminal justice system works on any level. And I don't believe that going in and firing a slew of people and hiring a bunch of new people is actually the way to go. If what I want to do and what I say I can do is change hearts and minds, then if I can't change the hearts and minds of the prosecutors who are there, um, then I have no business actually running for this office. And you know, going in, so like we have one candidate, Greg Henning, who has been a prosecutor for 10 years, He has acted exactly like every other prosecutor in a campaign since the beginning of time. You know, um, hire a bunch of people in the office, get everybody to give you money, even though they don't make any money at all. Ensure that everybody believes that if they don't work for you, there's going to be a consequence, right? And that if they do work for you, they're going to get something good when you become DA, You know, this, again, it's the, you know, who you know um, and how much you do for a politician is going to end up being either a benefit or a detriment. And that's exactly how our criminal justice system works, right? And if we're going to, and, and that's why it keeps going and churning on and on the same way. And if we are truly going to change what's happening in our courtrooms, we have to change what's happening in our campaigns and what's happening in um, you know, in prosecutor's offices as far as getting people elected. And that's why I won't take money from police. I won't take money from prosecutors. I believe that if we are going to change the status quo, it has to start with how we act when we're campaigning.
1: You were planning on running for district attorney
0: before Dan Conley stepped down. Right? Correct. So, Yeah, so I told my boss, Molly Baldwin at ROCA, last March, before she sent me on this really extravagant, amazing leadership training that was expensive, I said to her, you might not want to send me because if no one is going to be running against Dan Conley, I'm going to be leaving in January 2018 to run against him. And, you know, she sort of said, like, well, thank you for telling me. But also sort of thought like that was the most ridiculous thing anybody had ever heard. Uh, Because, you know, everybody, again, this is where the status quo keeps us all so stuck. You know, how could you run against a 16-year incumbent? That never happens in Massachusetts. Do you know how much money he has? How would you ever raise this money? I mean, this is, Molly Baldwin is the most fierce change maker I have ever seen, much less worked for. And even she was telling me how impossible this would be. And I just knew deep in my heart that if nobody else was going to run against him, we could not have four more years of this, because I would see, going into every courtroom, whether it was as a defense attorney or as a director of ROCA, a massive amount of unnecessary human suffering on behalf of victims, defendants, and witnesses every single day. And I thought, this simply can't happen, and if no one else is going to run against him, then I'm going to run against him. So I geared up. I left ROCA on January 21st um, in the... Beginning of February, a reporter called Conley's office and said, "I'm breaking that Shannon McCall if is running tomorrow. Is he still running?" And a senior advisor said, "Yes," and then said, "Oh, let me let me let me just check." And a couple of hours later later there was a press conference with Dan Conley saying he wasn't seeking re-election and his poor team around him just looking incredibly shocked because I mean it was it seemed clear that nobody knew this that this was happening. Um, But again, that just goes, it just exemplifies the culture and it being a scorecard. So instead of actually preparing a team and saying, this is what I'm doing, and ensuring that everybody's okay once um, he heard that I was getting into the race, instead of doing that, he just had a press conference in two hours to not seem like he was leaving because somebody was challenging him. And again, that's just... These are the values that have been set for all of these prosecutors, and I think it's woefully inadequate and it needs to change.
1: Yeah. Um, So in a world where Dan Conley didn't step down, I feel like there would be a lot fewer people in this race.
0: I think there would be... I think there would only be me in this race, Right. right? Because when I got into this race against Dan Conley... Greg was happily working for him and never would have never would have challenged him based on loyalty, again, status quo. Rachel Rollins was applying for my job at Roca Boston, and I was helping her get it. Evandro Carvalho was in another race in the state Senate. And uh, Linda Champion was, you know, practicing housing law. So, no, it didn't seem like any of the other current candidates had any plans on running against Dan Conley.
1: So do you worry a little bit? I feel like there's been a big push this year in particular to bring progressive candidates or reform-minded candidates into a ra- into races across the country and in Massachusetts. I feel like the ACLU has been working on this. Do you worry that the folks who are talking reform are going to split the ticket against, you know, a Greg Henning, who's more of like an old-line prosecutor?
0: Yes. I mean... Um... Of course. What I can say is that from doing the research that we've done in my campaign, what we saw very early on is that I had um, a lot of play with progressives. I had, and I also had a lot of play with people who would traditionally be great counting voters. And so when you have someone who's actually had a proven track record of fighting against injustice and somebody who's, you know, been a great public defender and then left and really effectuated change from a nonprofit offering a, a smart alternative to jail. And when you speak to voters who really want somebody who's progressively minded, then they're an easy check. But when you talk to others who might be more traditional, shall we say, but who have all loved somebody who struggled with mental health, all loved somebody who struggled with uh, drug addiction, and all know that jail is the very worst place for them, that my message actually resonates with them also. And so had I not had a lot of good evidence that my message and my background um, would play well with a lot of different voters, you know, that's something I might have been more worried about. But I believe that my sort of appeal comes in taking voters away from Henning um, for the most part uh, because I believe that even people who might be more, again, traditional, as you say, or more moderate really recognize that we need to do something different to get a different result because if you've loved somebody who has really struggled with, again, addiction or mental health, the thought that somebody you love would be in jail and not getting treatment is something that just everybody, resonates with everybody.
1: So switching gears a little bit, um, or reverting back to our conversation about uh, culture change and changing hearts and minds, I'm curious what your, uh, clearly your opponents will bring up the fact that you're a defense attorney, you haven't been in the office. Can you just respond to sort of that critique that defense attorneys have a fundamentally sort of different approach and, and you won't sort of vibe with folks in the prosecutor's office? Right.
0: So the difference with me is that I've been in Suffolk County criminal courts more than any of the other candidates. So Greg Henning has 10 years experience in Suffolk County courts prosecuting. Evandra Cavallo and Linda Champion have about two years and Rachel Rollins has zero years in Suffolk County Criminal Courts, either as a prosecutor or a defense attorney. So what I can say is, I know better than anyone what works and what doesn't. I represented vulnerable people against a prosecutor's office that I really, truly saw value winning more than actually valuing real justice. I also have a lot of relationships in the prosecutor's office, so when I announced that I was running um, I had a slew of texts from prosecutors saying, you know, um, I, you know I'm, I'm so excited, this would be so amazing, et cetera, et cetera, because they didn't have a candidate in the DA's office. They didn't feel like they needed to align with somebody to keep their jobs. And again, we're, we're dealing with a dynamic where everybody is used to somebody coming in and firing everybody. So I have good relationships in the DA's office. I feel like I have a really good sort of beat on who people are and what their strengths are and what their weaknesses are. And I believe that we'll be able to together sort of, it, I think it might actually just be a huge sigh of relief to a lot of people to say, listen, this is what we've been doing and it hasn't actually been working. Although they've been digging in their heels and saying like, no, 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 no. I think it's okay. I don't think what we're doing is, you know, um, is particularly racist or classist, even though all of the evidence around us Shows that it is. You just have to walk into any courtroom to see who's being prosecuted and who's being victimized, frankly. Um, That it might be jarring at first, but I actually think um, after this sort of like initial shock that somebody different is going to be leading them, I think that it will, um, that they will actually really see the value in it. We have Larry Krasner in Philadelphia who you know, not only was a defense attorney forever, but sued the police over and over again. And I know he went in and did actually fire a bunch of people. Um, but if you can have a DA who has you know, a kinder and sort of gentler approach with how we get people to change and applies that to the office, I think this is something where, listen, everybody wants to be their best self. Everybody wants to be part of building things and people. And I think that DAs, again, will respond the way that humans respond when given a choice.
1: Right. And I do think that there is a um, an ethos among, I mean, people who go to work in DA's offices think of themselves as public servants. They, they want to be doing good. Uh, and so being able to tap into that makes
0: sense. Absolutely. And if... But if you've been taught that the way you're good is to be tough on crime, quote-unquote, and, you know, ignoring all of the evidence to the contrary, that being smart on crime actually gets us more safety, um, then I think really setting a a value and a goal that's based in reality and based in evidence um, is something that will just help everybody in the deeds office as opposed to hinder them.
1: So ROCA is... Sort of a a notorious isn't the right word a famously innovative organization. Can you talk a little bit about your work for Roca and what you see carrying over? I know you talked a little bit about sort of transformational uh, change at the individual and cultural level, but are there other things that Roca does or or sort of specializes in that you think you'd be able to carry forward?
0: Yeah. So a lot of people know what Roca is. A lot of people don't. But so in a nutshell, it's a it's a nonprofit that engages those young emerging adults who are not ready, willing, or able to change. So there are tons of programs that somebody's like, hey I want to change, but I I just need some help doing it, and they they can show up at a program. ROGA is really for people who can't show up, don't know how to show up, Um, what they do is actually working for them, they've never actually considered change. So in a lot of ways they can be um, some of the most dangerous people that we have, because they haven't really thought about another option, nor have it ever been sort of presented to them. So at ROCA, we relentlessly engage young people to build relationships and then use those relationships to sort of say, hey, do you want something different in your life? And then take them through the process of change from pre-contemplation, which is never thinking about it, to contemplating, to planning, to acting, and then sustaining. It's a four-year program. And after two years, 80% have no arrest for any new offense. So it works. It's set the standard in the state and the nation for reducing recidivism and interrupting poverty. Uh, it's hard, gritty work, but, and it, you don't see change immediately. That's why we measure after two years. So it's not for the faint of heart. You have to be patient. You have to be able to use data also because a lot of times it doesn't look like somebody's changing, but when you use data to measure emotional regulation, um, ability to comprehend, you know, test scores and all of that, you can actually see change when often it doesn't look like change because somebody's screaming and yelling at you because, uh, you know, they don't want to leave work or or whatever, whatever the case may be. We also help train people or really help people learn how to work um, if you have never been taught or in an environment where you have to you know, show up at 7 a.m. and be in a uniform and all of that, it's literally like walking on Mars for a lot of young men, and so we just take them through that in a, in a way that understands that they're going to fail and stumble along the way, but that's how we all learn. So that's what ROCA is. Um, it is all about transformational change. We talk a lot at ROCA about how every interaction with a young person has to be intentional. So as director, you know, I uh, ran teams that were deeply engaged in change work. In Roca Boston, we serviced over 200 really high-risk young men, and I had to really arrange and sort of control for the environment because there are so many different gangs and so many different affiliations that we had to really adapt our already evidence-based model to a new entire system. So on one hand, I think, as DA, really trying to divert more people, it's going to take somebody who's very mindful of who can be where um, and ensure that people aren't going to cross where they would have safety issues because a lot of times people don't go to school or they don't go to work or they don't go to this program because it's simply not safe for them. So that's one carryover from ROCA. The other is that the way that we interact with young people is how we interact as management. we would have, you know, very intense management meetings, and we'd sit in a circle like we do with young men, and we'd have a talking piece, right, and sort of talk about what's really hard and what's challenging us, and where we think we're failing, and where we th- where we think we're doing well. So, it's about really being transparent with each other and with our jobs and our struggles, so that we can bind together and move forward through really hard, mucky areas um, together. But, you know, this is about fundamentally being different in management and in what we do and not saying, you know, I have all of the answers, but rather saying, this is what I think I can do, this is, these are sort of my fears and where I think um, I haven't done so well and listening to other people in management say the same thing so that we can help each other and bind together and actually go forward to do something that is, you know, really hard work. I mean, going through and moving through uncharted territory is tough. And you have to figure out how, in management, you bind people together to be really strong enough to do that. So that's sort of a second part, I think, at ROCA. And then the third part is, at ROCA, we really intervene in young men's lives to help them change. But as director, I intervened in the system to help the system change, which means that I had point people in the police department, point people in the prosecutor's office, point people in probation and the judiciary And with every step, I would just say, like, listen, we are going to do something different, and how are you going to help me do it? And so I became really good at helping people move through the change process, even in the system.
1: So is there anything I have not asked you about that you think is important to talk about or important to know about your campaign or candidacy?
0: I could ask this question, and it's so hard to... Uh, to figure out at the time what what the Im- really important thing is. I mean, I think that you know we've had in the past forty years three men who have been DAs uh, for two to four terms. We had Newman Flanagan, uh, Ralph Martin, who was you know thirty nine and supposedly going to be this reform candidate, but not a lot changed with the way that people were being prosecuted. And then Dan Conley. So we've seen a drop in crime across the nation. I don't think that at all has anything to do with there being new and innovative ways of prosecuting that has actually resulted in that, which is, I think, what this prosecutor's office is trying to say now. Um, But I don't have an interest. I think the most important thing about me is I never wanted to be... DA because, you know, this is my dream. I want to be DA for my own value. I saw a need in the world for change, and I saw that nobody else was stepping up to the plate to fill that need. And so I left my job, I left my life, which I really loved, frankly, to get into a race that has been, you know, hard and difficult. I've had to navigate, you know, Sort of being a politician, which isn't my thing. Um, you know, I've always been the one who sort of like been in the corner working as hard as possible to try to get, you know, the result that I wanted that I thought was most just. And I had bosses that said, you know, you should go out to lunch with the city councilor and you should meet this person and that person. And I was always just too damn busy to go do that. So this isn't about um, me. It was really about how do I ensure that we elevate a conversation. How do we ensure that we really look at what we're doing in the criminal justice system so we get much better results? And, you know, I don't, I don't have any interest in being the DA for 16 years. I pride myself on being somebody who goes in and changes cultures. I'm good at it. I learned, I learned how to do it at the Kennedy School of Government after I left law. I did it in Roca, Chelsea. I did it in Roca, Boston with great success, and that's what I want to do here. I also think it's really important to train the next generation to come in and take over. If there was somebody else who I thought was, you know, frankly, um, much better suited for this, uh, I, would, I would try to find them to run for this job. Um, but again, when nobody else was willing to step up to the plate, I really looked in the mirror and said I'm willing to give up sort of my whole life to do this. And uh, no matter what the decision is on September 4th, I don't regret it. We don't have an incumbent which is incredibly important in Massachusetts because even though it seems like it would be easier to run against you know, the old versus the new, incumbents are traditionally really hard to get out of office, especially here. And uh, you know, when I lay my head down at night, I'm really proud of the journey that I've taken and the conversation that's happening right now, which I never thought I'd see in my, in my life, especially when I started as a new public defender. And I think that uh, voters are smart. And listen, whatever the result is, I'll still be in this fight, um, because I've been in the fight since, you know, 1993. So I feel really privileged to be in this position, and uh, it's just been a great ride.
1: So because this is uh, for people who are not just Boston residents, but people who are interested in criminal justice reform, and there has been this wave of progressive prosecutors, however people choose to define that, what advice would you have for someone who's thinking about like who's sitting where you were, let's say November or January of last year thing? like something needs to change and I might have to be the
0: one that steps up to do this. Call me. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wish I wish I knew so much more than I knew when I started in a lot of ways I think I was I was um really naive about what this took and what the political and how important the political machine is but no matter how unlikely it seems and again I tell you when I was a public defender it would have been if somebody said that a public defender could run for DA and be a very serious contender everybody would have just laughed out loud and um But, you know, change, unless you take a a giant risk, change simply won't happen. And if we all knew the end of the story and we could write it, then um, life would be certainly much less interesting, right? But, you know, there's no way that you you simply just have to test these things to see um, if they'll gain any traction. And... I didn't know when I got in the race if people would just laugh me out of it, but literally when a reporter called Dan Conley, there was a press conference two hours later that he wasn't seeking re-election. So you don't know, you know, the power of putting your hat in the ring um, can have a lot of, you can affect change in a lot of different ways. Uh, And I keep thinking of, you know, Obama saying that I think his very first election, I mean, he lost dismally. And it was only a few years, actually, I think, maybe four or six before he became president. So you just never know what the path is, and we're all better for trying. And a lot of times we, you know, we say to defendants, and we would say to young men at ROCA, you know, like, oh, just take this chance and just do it and, you know, all of that. And I think we have to really model uh, what we're telling other people to do. You know, if you want to take another path, then uh, we have to be strong enough to do it ourselves before we tell other people in the system to do it.
1: Great. Well, I will leave it at that. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know that this was hard to squeeze in in <laughs> a very busy week. Yeah, yeah, thanks so much. Okay, thanks so much for listening. Um, if you want to learn more, you can go to mcauliffe 4 com, And if you're interested in the race more broadly, you can check out the ATLU of Massachusetts it has a great program called What a Difference a DA Makes, and they have scorecards or questionnaires from all of the candidates if you want to learn more about the race. I know that Shannon's team is looking for folks to volunteer on Election Day, and I'm sure the other candidates are as well, so try to get out and get involved with your, with your local politics. Uh, other than that, thank you so much to Poddington Bear for composing our theme music, and to Brooke Hopkins and Anna White for their continued support of this podcast. Thanks.